When we were on the ground reporting in Ukraine last month, I met someone named Tatyana Shishova. She lives in Cherniev, a city about two hours outside of Kyiv. And she walked me into a garden of a historic library there. To me, it was never just a library. It was a place where everyone in Chernihiv gathered. We could meet writers, find people who shared our interests, and there were so many books. Its official name is the Chernihiv Regional Library of Youth. It's a small Gothic building with stained glass and small spires. It's painted creamsicle orange and has this white trim that looks like icing. I spent a lot of time here as a child, and books played an important role in my life. They actually made me who I am today. The library wasn't always a library. At one point it was an orphanage, and at the turn of the 20th century, it was owned by a rich collector. He eventually left it to the city with stacks of manuscripts and art inside, which the city then turned into a museum a museum entirely devoted to Ukrainian culture. More recently, it became a kind of community gathering place. People would meet for tea in the garden in the back. There'd be book readings, Christmas concerts, like this one in 2018. Tatiana remembers spending a lot of time there when she was growing up. And she eventually became one of its librarians. Events in my life always seem to bring me back to this library. And when I started working here, well, it seemed like part of my destiny. A dream come true. A dream come true, yeah. Tatiana was totally unprepared for what would happen in March 2022, when the Russians decided to attack Cherniev. She and her brother were at home when Russian planes began screaming across the night sky, dropping bombs on the city. When the bombing started, I did what you are supposed to do. I fell to the floor and covered my head with my hands. My brother, he ran to the window. He's the kind of person who runs to the window. And my brother kept saying to me, get up, get up, look outside. And when she finally got up to look, she put her hand to her mouth in horror. I could see the orange of fires against the dark sky. It looked like the Russians had bombed her beloved library potentially destroying hundreds of cultural artifacts that bore witness not just to Ukrainian history, but its identity, too. As Tatyana watched her library go up in flames, she couldn't have possibly imagined the technology that would help her save it. I'm Dina Templerest, and this is Click Here, a podcast about all things cyber and intelligence. We tell true stories about the people making and breaking our digital world. At the heart of the Russian invasion was President Vladimir Putin's contention that Ukraine was essentially just a part of Russia, a breakaway region without its own heritage or traditions, which is not at all true. 
But Russia appears to be trying to bomb its way into that narrative, targeting cultural landmarks and historic sites in Ukraine, and trying to destroy anything that smacks as being uniquely Ukrainian. But some cutting-edge technologies are helping Ukrainians beat back Moscow's effort to erase their culture and history. Ordinary people are doing an extraordinary thing. They're taking pictures of important sites and monuments and uploading them for safekeeping. How can you preserve a culture against such a formidable foe? Make a backup and put it in the cloud. It can't get lost, it can't get flooded, and also it can't get bombed. Stay with us. Hello, I'm Adam Fleming from the Global Story podcast from the BBC World Service. We are looking at Lena Khan, the face of the US government's battle to regulate big tech. She's already redefined the way we talk about monopolies. Now she's taking on the likes of Amazon and Meta. But who is she and will she win? The Global Story brings you fresh takes and smart perspectives from BBC journalists around the world. Find us wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. That March morning after the bombing, Tatiana rode her bike over to the library, and she could see the damage even before she got there. The ground was covered with fragments of houses, of pieces of wood and glass. I was horrified by what I saw. The library's stained glass windows were blown out, and the roof looked like it was stuck in mid-collapse. There'd been a fire, and the sheer force of the explosion had sent books all over the road. I saw one book and wanted to collect it. And then I wanted to collect others, and I kept doing that as I cried. Tatiana began piling them up on the curb, grabbing what she could find, trying to smooth out pages, straightening spines. It smelled, she said later, of a particular kind of death. I felt a nauseousness, sweet smell of the corpse in the library, and I felt that it smelled like corpses out there. Dead books, she says. It smelled of dead books. For the people of Cherniev, the bombing of the library left them stunned. The library had survived the Bolsheviks in 1918, Nazi bombings in the 1940s, and now it seemed to have finally succumbed. When Tatiana looked back at the collapsed building, it looked like an old face missing teeth. Serhii Remvenko drove into Cherniev a few days after the bombing to deliver some boxes of food for the survivors. And he said what he saw when he arrived looked like something out of a black-and-white movie from another era. People that standing in a line waiting for a food in Cherniev, um, that was really uh, giving me the sense of the anger and the upset in me. He heard about the bombing of the youth library. It was all over the news. And since it wasn't far, he walked over to get a closer look. I was really 
shocked by the damage, yeah, and how, how big the crater is. He saw that the library hadn't suffered a direct hit. Planes had dropped a bomb, but it had missed the building by just a few feet. Sir, he could see a gaping crater the size of a school bus where the library's garden had once been, and the building looked like it was going to slip down into it. Sir, he pulled out his camera. Uh, actually, I have it right here. Okay. It's not that special. It's the no, really it's a good old Nikon. Uh, it's a good old Nikon, right? This wasn't the instinct of a random passerby taking a picture of a terrible tragedy. This is actually what Sir He does. I'm a graduated architect, volunteer, and a 3D scanning specialist, and a surveyor. He picked up that Nikon and snapped a photo. For a very specific reason. He thought he might be able to help by documenting the damage. After he took that first picture, he looked around, wondering if maybe someone would shout at him and tell him to stop. He saw some police and he waited for them to say something. I was really nervous at the time because maybe I was doing something illegal. But all he could hear was the murmur of people in the food line and traffic out on the street. So he snapped a few more photographs. And then a few more. Uh, so I took around 1,000 at the time. A thousand photographs from every conceivable angle which might sound like a lot of pictures, unless you're an expert at something called photogrammetry, like Serhi. Photogrammetry literally means the act of deriving precise measurements from photographs, and it involves taking a set of overlapping photos of an object, or a building, or a person, and then converting them into something three-dimensional by using computer algorithms. It's really necessary for photogrammetry to make the next photo uh, should be captured at least 60% from the previous photo. Think of it as a souped-up version of those old panoramic pictures you might have taken back in the day. You wanted to capture the whole horizon, so you took one picture, made a mental note where that one shot stopped and started, and then took another until you got the whole thing. And then, when the photographs came back from the processing lab, remember those, you could just tape them all together to get a panoramic view. Sir, he says, he was doing the digital version of that. But the end result is much more precise and important. Imagine you have the digital twin, all of the buildings that you can see in the real world. So it's like an incredibly accurate animated blueprint. Yeah, you're right. But Sir, he went a step further. He got together with some other architects and laid his hands on a laser scanner. It looks like a little miniature R2-D2 robot. So basically, the laser scan gives you the millions of points, but it's precise in, the, in their coordinates. The process is pretty simple. You point your R2-D2 at your object, the laser sends out a beam, and the beam bounces back, giving the precise shape of the object. But also, it can tell you things about what the building is made of. The amount of time it takes for the laser to bounce back changes, depending on the type of material it runs into. Sir, he points to the ceiling of the room where we're speaking. As we can see right now in, the, in this room, the plaster on the ceiling. But we don't know, probably it, w it was at some of the time repaired 
or just minor cracks was uh, uh, place the other plaster on top of that. Right. With the laser scan, I can I can see all of these. So you could see plaster on top of concrete, for example, because of the intensity of coming yes, back. Yes, and it's really revealing some of the things that you cannot capture with the human eye. And he said, think about how long this used to take when you had just a tape measure and a friend. Imagine how, how, how much time it took you to measure all of these points. Uh, probably a couple of months, right? But this is what you can get through the couple of hours with the laser. So if you're trying to save cultural and historic sites, being able to capture a digital blueprint of something like the library can make a future restoration that much easier and less expensive. When we started to calculate the budget, it became obvious that his 3D scanning and the model that was built based on the clouds of dots reduces the budget up to 20%. That's Katerina Honsharova a Ukraine heritage crisis specialist with the World Monuments Fund. She's working on the library restoration project. You do not need to conduct architectural survey. All measurements are there. And, you know, take it by hands, all the architectural details, decorations. This all requires a lot of labor. So we had a perfect uh, plan of the building. We had facades. It's all was in his model. Wow. So this is why I'm all into 3D scanning, not only as, a, as an instrument to document the damage, but also as a very, ser- very serious investment in, during the war and post-war recovery. Which is why Serhi and a roster of architects and NGOs are doing these kinds of scans all over Ukraine. They're photographing cultural sites that have been casualties of war and sites that might be targets in the future, like... Tetiana's beloved library. And the Library of Youth in Chernigiv was among their first sites to visit, assess, and to suggest 3D scanning. She said there might be a temptation to think the destruction of the Library of Youth was some sort of mistake, a bomb that went astray. There is a really serious, deliberate attacks on cultural heritage sites, like Museum of Primachenko in Ivankiv, like Museum of Skovoroda next to Kharkiv, and the Library of Youth in Chernigiv. Uh, and of Do course, you think it's you, a coincidence? I don't think that's a coincidence. And of course, we have a war on Ukrainian identity, and those sites are the absolute pivotal points of Ukrainian identity as well. So they are become a target. UNESCO, the United Nations culture arm, confirmed back in April that some 250 Ukrainian cultural sites have suffered damage as a direct result of the Russian invasion. When senior producer Sean Powers and I visited the Library of Youth a few weeks ago, it was more than a year and a half after the bombing, and there was a buzz of activity around the library. Workers began to put up a permanent roof. Perimeter walls were going up. Katrina said what we might not have noticed was that they aren't just making the building whole. They're also allowing the building to tell a story. The point isn't to try to forget what happened to the youth library in March 2022, but instead to try to remember it forever. The building has a scar of very recent history, so we cannot erase it. It 
becomes a part of its identity, but with a perfect harmony of authentic remains. A funny thing happened soon after the attack on the Library of Youth. The people of Cherniev started appearing around the ruins. Some were holding freshly baked cakes in the shape of the building. Others placed flowers on the stairs and wrote poems. People offered to house books until the library was rebuilt. And Tetiana and a volunteer crew at the library eventually set up a way to deliver the donated books to patrons or anyone who wanted them. Katerina said she's seen this kind of reaction before. When you lose something, you start to appreciate it more. When we come back, ordinary Ukrainians take part in their own cultural preservation. It turns out you don't have to be an expert like Serhi to do this work. We'll be right back. Blockchain, NFTs, AI. What does this mean for you and me? I'm Sherelle Dorsey, host of the TED Tech Podcast, where we bring you the latest innovations and biggest ideas in tech. Tech is evolving fast and it affects our lives. From the metaverse to the watches on our wrists, you'll learn why people in AI make good business partners, about our future self-driving robo-taxi, what the next generation of Siri, Alexa, Google looks like, and a lot more. Find TED Tech on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. You're listening to Click Here. I'm Dina Temple-Raston. Tao Thompson is creative director of an innovation lab connected to Vice Media. He lives in Denmark. And a little over a year ago, he was watching the war just like the rest of us, when he noticed this unusual thing Ukrainians seem to be doing. A lot of people seem to care more about preserving statues and pieces of cultural heritage than their own well-being. Uh, here we saw these people who took this really valiant uh, efforts to protect statues and, uh, and other very sort of like physical manifestations of their culture. They were wrapping statues in bubble wrap and moving blankets and gaffer tape, and they were putting sandbags in front of buildings. Which obviously will never be as good against artillery shell. And, but at the same time, there was a, a driving force here that we needed to, to dig deeper into and understand. So Tao started to do some research. What was it about these cultural artifacts? And why was it that Ukrainians were holding them so dear? One of their representatives was on the radio speaking to this. And, and the journalist had the very same question for him, that why are we seeing this? And he replied in seven words that just completely burned into our minds, which is um, destroying a country's national heritage is the fastest way to erase the national identity. According to the Smithsonian Institution, there are some 30,000 cultural sites in Ukraine that have been deemed preservation-worthy. 30,000. We thought there's not enough bubble plastic in that country to, to do all of it. So we also knew that whatever we had to do, it had to be extremely scalable because the, just the sheer size of a country's cultural heritage is um, it's not something you can pack down into boxes. So instead, they decided to do something more techy, something people already do to preserve things in their personal lives. By taking a digital copy and putting it in the cloud where you can't, it can't get lost. 
of it. And we do this with everything that's important to us. We do it with our with our vacation photos, and we do it with invitations from our wedding, and we do it with important documents. While Ukrainians may not be able to physically protect all 30,000 cultural sites, there is something they can do. Capture them in 3D. So they created an app with UNESCO, the United Nations Cultural Organization, that would allow people to do a kind of point-and-click photogrammetry with their smartphones. They called it Backup Ukraine. With traditional photogrammetry, you essentially have to take hundreds and hundreds of panoramic photographs and then stitch them together by a sophisticated computer program. But with Backup Ukraine, all you have to do is open the app and methodically move your iPhone camera over whatever you wanted to preserve. Then it just uploads the digital model to a secure server. It just takes a few minutes, and we wanted to see it work. Yuri. Nice to meet you, Yuri Artuk is one of the thousands of people who started using the app to memorialize statues and historic sites. And we met up with him in Kyiv, so he could show us the app in action. First of all, I'm going to start the application. We recommend starting with an interior space that you're familiar with. That's the tutorial it begins with. Because all the latest, uh, the iPhones and the other phones, as well, I think they have a LiDAR scanner. LiDAR scanner. That's the little R2-D2 camera we talked about before. But now there's a version of it in your smartphone. Which actually scans like in the 3D already. So it's not just a photo, it's, it's already coming, getting data like in, in a 3D kind of way, getting points from, from the surface of the object and arranging them in this mesh. We're standing in front of a border guard statue in a stone monument, and Yuri is pointing his phone at it about to start a scan. We can see the monument on a screen, and it's kind of blued out. So we can already see like a preview of, of we have an idea of how it's going to look when we finish the scan. And once I, once I push this button, like the, the record button, we're mm-hmm. going to actually begin scanning. And it's As he waves his phone back and forth, the image of the monument starts to emerge from the blue. And we could see how it covers, like the blue area is the one that is not scanned yet. And then eventually, if I'm moving really slowly... We're going to get it. And then I should walk around it. And you're trying to make the blue go away? Is that yeah. the idea? Yeah, exactly. Oh, that's pretty cool. It's very fast. Yeah, yeah, with the LiDAR, it's really fast. That's pretty cool. It looks just like the monument. Once he's walked slowly all the way around it, the 3D image on his screen looks like an exact replica of the monument. If you go to the Backup Ukraine website right now, you'll see statues and buildings that have already been scanned. The hope is, if these objects are destroyed in the war, these scans can be used to help rebuild them. So normally we say that with the, with the app, you can scan stuff that's bigger than a mouse and smaller than an elephant. This is Tao Thompson from Vice again. Um, and if you need to go larger or smaller than that, then you need specialist equipment and you need specialist training. Um, but within within that scale, I would say that it's it's ninety percent as good as the professional results. With just cell phones, you can get ninety percent of what a professional architect like Serhi can. And very quickly, people were picking up their cell phones to help. Instead of bubble wrap, people were using their smartphones, downloading the app, and scanning monuments and statues. And then this other completely unexpected thing happened. People started scanning random personal items. 
And when we got into this, we were a little bit annoyed at like, why are people scanning all of these insignificant items? Uh, we even actually called the developers and said like, isn't there a way that we can hide all of this? And and luckily they talked us out of it because then when we spoke to people down there, we realized that actually these places have deep significance. It started with, of all things, cupcakes. Lots of scans and uploads of cupcakes. We were baffled, called immediately somebody saying, what's up with the cupcakes? Uh, and what we don't realize is that they're on the Orthodox calendar instead of the Roman calendar, I guess. So Easter is a uh, false difference down there. And it was Easter to uh, Orthodox Christian Ukrainians. It's the main family gathering of the year. And a key part of the celebration includes, you guessed it, cupcakes. And then, then it dawned upon us that like, for a lot of people, that might be the last time in a, in a very long while that they get to see family all be together in so what at first sight seemed frivolous and, and trivial suddenly we realized well to a lot of people that has a very very real significance Tao said it reminded him of how personal and intimate culture can be because of course it's not just the things of national importance that are being destroyed in this war but very personal things too and technology is being used to preserve them both. And we had another situation with a lot of toys appearing, and they all came from the same user. The user was uploading Legos, like the kid's toy. And I tried just Googling the username to figure out, like, who is this person, and maybe shouldn't they start scanning actual cultural stuff. But when he found that user's social media profile, his heart sank. <laughs> I found the social profile and was a kid, like a... a Pretty young kid, actually. Okay, I wonder what what made that kid want to make a digital copy of all of their toys. The toys the kid had scanned were intricate Lego towers and buildings. Those Lego projects that kids build with their parents and friends and then obsess over. And they're also the kind of thing your parents would tell you you had to leave behind in a war. I can only speculate, but like, may- maybe there's somebody who wants a memory of something when, that they have to leave when they, when they move further. Technology is like that. Often it gets built for one reason, but people use it for something more. And ironically, sometimes that something ends up being, well, more human. Tao said that's exactly what happened with Backup Ukraine. At first, it was just a sort of cool technical project for a faraway country. And then it evolved. This project kept sort of breaking down my logical thinking and putting a real sort of like emotional immediacy. Um, I think there's something really immersive in in 3D objects that breaks down that wall and that opens up our capacity for empathy again. Like it, it stops being so abstract when you can, when you can almost like walk inside of it. You start asking like, wow, that can really happen. Funny thing about the backup Ukraine app. Within weeks of its launch, all the major cultural sites in Kyiv had already been scanned. Ukrainians had fanned out and photographed all the statues and monuments all over the city and then uploaded them to the cloud. And what about Tetyana and the youth library in Cherniv? Tetyana was standing in the garden with me when she smiled and said, If all goes well, the library and its cafe could reopen by the end of 2024. When you are rebuilt 
And this is a cafe. We'll have mint tea together. And we'll go bike to the river. And deliver some books. <laughs> This is Click Here. Here are some of the top cyber and intelligence stories of the past week. Officials at Europol say a key target allegedly involved with the Ragnar Locker ransomware group was arrested in Paris last week. Ragnar did a lot of double extortion operations, exploiting vulnerabilities in Microsoft Windows operating systems. They would encrypt files and threaten to make private information public unless a ransom was paid. People who tracked the group knew something was up before the official announcement. The gang's leak site, where it posted stolen information from those who didn't agree to their demands, was replaced with a banner featuring the insignias of a roster of law enforcement agencies. Ragar Locker has been extorting people since December 2019 attacking several major targets, including the largest airline in Portugal, a large Israeli hospital, and the national natural gas operator of Greece. The European Commission has sent both Meta and TikTok letters requesting information on their efforts to rein in disinformation related to the Israel-Hamas war. The letter cites the platform's obligations under Europe's Digital Services Act, or DSA, which regulates the social media giants. Under the DSA, the companies could be fined up to 6% of their global annual revenue if they're found to be out of compliance. In extreme circumstances, the Commission could also ban the platforms from operating in the EU altogether. The Commission said in a press release that the European Union wants to audit the actions that companies have taken to try to comply with the DSA. It made a similar request of Elon Musk's ex-social platform, previously known as Twitter, earlier this month. And finally... The International Criminal Court said on Friday that the serious cybersecurity incident it had detected back in September was an act of espionage. In a statement on the court's website, it said the attack could be interpreted as a serious attempt to undermine the court's mandate. The statement didn't suggest who might be behind it, but the court, which is based in The Hague in the Netherlands, said that Dutch law enforcement authorities were looking into it. It's not clear what information, if any, was stolen during the incident. As part of its duties, the court processes sensitive information related to war crimes investigations, including data about witnesses who could be at risk if their identities were exposed. The attack came around the same time as a data breach of the general prosecutor's office in Kyiv, Ukraine. The general prosecutor is in charge of gathering evidence of possible Russian war crimes in Ukraine. I'm Dina Temple-Raston, and I'm the executive producer and host of the show. Sean Powers is our senior producer and marketing director. Will Jarvis is our producer, and Lucas Riley and Jade Abdul-Malik are our staff writers. Our editing team is led by Karen Duffin and Lou Wolkowski, and Darren Ancrum does our fact-checking. Special thanks this week to Darina Antonuk and Daniel Puchdarov for their help with our reporting on the ground in Ukraine. We'd also like to thank Thomas Melson of R3DA in Copenhagen for his patient explanation of photogrammetry and laser scanning. Among other things, they've been donating laser scanners to help Ukraine with its cultural preservation efforts.
Our theme and original music compositions are by Ben Levingston. We also use music from Blue Dot Sessions. And as always, we'd love to hear from you. Please leave us a review and rating wherever you get your podcasts, or send us an email at clickhere at recordedfuture.com. And check out our website with details about our shows and our whole show catalog at clickhereshow.com. That's a wrap for this week. I'm Dina Templerest. We'll be back on Tuesday. Looking for more of the cybersecurity and intelligence coverage you get on Click Here? Then check out our sister publication, The Record, from Recorded Future News. You'll get breaking cyber news from reporters in New York, Washington, London, and Kiev, among others. And you'll see for yourself why it attracts hundreds of thousands of page views every month. Just go to the record.media.